I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Trampoline Hall podcast. I'm your host, Misha Globerman. Trampoline Hall, as you probably know by now, is a lecture series that takes place in a bar in the city of Toronto. Uh, at Trampoline Hall, people give lectures on all kinds of subjects. The one rule is that they cannot speak on subjects on which they are professionally expert. After each lecture, we take questions from the audience. Um, this podcast often contains mature language, and this episode is no exception. The title of the lecture is I Was a Public Speaking Champion. And the lecturer is Salvatore Antonio. Honorable judges, esteemed guests, fellow opponents, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my name is Salvatore Antonio, and this evening I will be speaking about how I was a public speaking champion. That little intro, by the way, that was the standard salutation that we used in actual speech competitions, acknowledging the audience in order of importance and then ending with the title or subject of the speech laid out in one sentence with a maximum use of one piece of punctuation within the sentence. Again, honorable judges, sure, esteemed guests, Sheila, fellow opponents, but not really, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, blah, 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 blah. Okay, maybe the word champion is a bit much, but the truth is, yes, for three years in the late 80s, I excelled in oral communications. That's what it says on the ribbons I won. Oral communications. <clears throat> I won many public speaking competitions, placing first in at least 20, going from school auditoriums through to provincial arenas. And I say at least 20 because, well, frankly, I can't remember a lot of the specifics around my oral era. I mean, <laughs> it was 30 years ago. I mean, I do know that I won many trophies and medals and $50 cash awards. These, no joke, these are the surviving few that made it through the numerous moves. I know that two boxes full of these were dumped by my father into a Goodwill donation box many years ago because Lord knows those in need would like a trophy. Six wood-mounted plaques with my name inscribed on them were lovingly bound together with masking tape by my mother and sold at a garage sale. One can only imagine a use for those. 
Now, neither parent actually asked me if they could get rid of them, by the way. Yeah, it was just assumed that I had no need for them anymore. And after I cycled through the rage that comes from such an assumption, I realized that they were probably right. See, my period of public speaking excellence was not just about the awards. It was important because it marked the first time in my life that I actually felt really good at something. Something that allowed me to experience the first thrill of applause. Something that allowed me to be excused from school during the day and be chauffeured to a neighboring school's gym or library like the verbal show pony I was. <laughs> but most importantly, public speaking allowed me to gain the respect of my classmates, even from the prematurely macho preteen genos I was usually terrified of. <laughs> Yeah, that's Sal. He's a bit of a fairy, but he talks good. <laughs> I was 11 when it started. The year was 1986. And I was in grade 6 at St. Matthew's Catholic School in Markham, Ontario. At that time, I was, to put it mildly, a blessed disaster. Complete with bad skin, too many teeth, over-gelled, spiked hair, and a prepubescent voice that was routinely mistaken on the phone for my 17-year-old sister. My fashion sense at that time was still, um, forming. For years, there was a framed newspaper clipping that my parents hung proudly in our living room. It was a giant photo of me that they ran in the Markham Economist and Sun. In it, I'm clutching one of these trophies. I just won it proudly, and I'm wearing a very loose acrylic blend Cosby sweater from the Woolco department store, and it's pretty close to off the shoulder. My high-waisted jeans are, of course, safety-pinned up to my knees, and I basically look like a lesbian poli-sci major working weekends at American Apparel. But see, I was the real deal disaster without a drop of irony. I don't think I knew what I don't think I know what irony is. Terrifyingly earnest in my pursuit of cool, there was way too many photos. A good introduction should grab the attention of the audience and then quickly give them an idea of what's going to be discussed, but also an idea of the person who's delivering the speech and their credibility on the subject. Formality should be reserved for the opening salutation and respected when constructing the skeleton of the speech, but that formality cannot creep into the tone of delivery or else it will distance the listener. A good public speaker should adopt a familiar tone so that the audience forgets at times that they are in fact listening to a speech. They should feel as though they are listening to a friend who also happens to be an amazing raconteur. <laughs> I read somewhere that for most people, the number one fear is public speaking, with the number two fear being death. <laughs> I will tell you that even years after making all these speeches and then my current career as an actor, speaking in front of thousands of people in one way or another, fear never really disappears from the equation. You just rearrange the order a bit so that you can operate in spite of it. Believe it or not, I am scared right now. Not just nervous, and no, not just anxious. <laughs> Pretty fucking scared. Mostly about forgetting my words. 
<clears throat> that's why I have these. I use a 16 point font sans serif and I print them on cardstock <laughs> so that my shaking hand doesn't betray me as easily as they would with regular flimsy paper. <laughs> Tips from the top. My first real attempt at speech writing actually took place in grade five when it was assigned by my teacher, Miss Scalzitti, a wonderfully scented, overly made up woman with huge hair who routinely wore shiny dresses and high heels to school. I adored her. The subject I chose for my first speech was poltergeists. <laughs> the supernatural phenomena, not the movie. Well, that first speech was pretty much a failure. Uh, the problem with it was that it was just really boring. Informative, yes, but boring. And I recall delivering that first speech in front of my class in almost absolute silence. Part of that was because Miss Scalzitti had a thing against clapping. She had an ear injury of some sort that made the sound excruciating for her. I'm not making this up. And so our class had to learn to snap or nod in appreciation. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this shit up. So after rambling on about German ghosts for five minutes, I looked up from my blue cue cards to a class of bored 10-year-olds nodding like zombies or trying to snap as loud as they could. I didn't make it to the gym for the school finals that year, needless to say. But Miss Galzitti pulled me aside after class and asked why I hadn't chosen a more lively subject. She went on to explain that she felt like I was trying to sound like someone else, someone far more serious than the Sal she knew. Scalzitti told me that the biggest thing missing from my speech was me, my sense of humor, my penchant for the dramatic. According to her, these were the most important ingredients I was missing. I mean, who knew? <laughs> the main body of the speech is the most difficult part. Keeping an audience engaged requires stakes and raising the tension as you progress through the speech. While the main body is made up of multiple sections, or stories in this case, it is important to think about contrast between the good and bad of your subject matter and contrast the two with examples. So, after my poltergeist... Oh, pop that B. <laughs> after my poltergeist flop... I took Miss Scalzitti's advice to bring more me, specifically funny me, to the next speech. The opportunity came the next year in grade six when my new teacher, Mr. Rosettis, announced our unit on public speaking. I realized the perfect topic had been percolating in me all year. I rushed home and I wrote the whole thing in one weekend. It just poured out of me. The topic, life's embarrassing moments. Life's Embarrassing Moments was less of an educational speech, uh, but rather a collection of preteen situations in which I suffered public humiliation. It included tripping in class, shirts worn inside out, getting a nosebleed during a wedding, and other equally innocuous and naive examples. I mean, the first time I delivered the speech in front of my class, I knew I had a winner. I discovered that following my instincts yielded great results, like laughter, a new reality for me where everyone was laughing because of me, not at me. And there was a power there. 
a power that was connective and positive. I coasted through that speech like I knew what I was doing, like it was second nature. I was hooked. My class cheered, Rosettis looked genuinely impressed, and I moved forward. I'm sure I grew an inch taller that day. After the class win, I went on to represent the intermediate level in the gymnasium, and this time in front of my entire school. I won't bore you with all the details of my victory, but needless to say, I won first place, and suddenly I became a bit of a grade school celebrity. Winning my school competition meant that I would go on to the York Region Separate School Board Public Speaking Finals, which took place the next month. So for the next three weeks after school, I worked on my winning Life's Embarrassing Moments speech, this time with a coach, none other than the wonderful Miss Scalzitti. The two of us would rehearse twice a week in the music room, and she would help me refine my delivery by teaching me about things like emphatic gesture and vocal coloring. She would say things like, you're going to be amazing. And because I felt like she really meant it, I realized for the first time I could be amazing. I will always treasure those afternoons with Miss Bettina Scalzitti, my first adult friend. <laughs> Anyhow, when the day of the big competition came, it began with a special shout-out over the PA system during the morning announcements where it was suggested, because I went to a Catholic school, that everyone keep me in their prayers as I represented St. Matthew's in the York Region Finals. No pressure there. Everyone in my class whooped and hollered. Mr. Rosettis clapped me on the back like I was heading into battle. It felt good. Sadly, when it came time for me to go, it wasn't Miss Scalzitti who would be taking me. Instead, it was my vice principal, Mrs. Charlene James. She came to collect me from class. Now, Mrs. James was feared by everyone. As vice principal, it fell on her desk to be in charge of disciplinary action. Warnings, phone calls to parents, detentions, and of course, the rare and dreaded suspension. Hers was the office you were called to if you were in major shit. Well, when she appeared at my classroom door wearing her car-length silver fox coat with her purse hanging off her shoulder, the class went silent. And I had to remind myself that I was not leaving with Mrs. James because I was in trouble, but because I was a champion. <laughs> That's right. I was simply being escorted to another victory. <laughs> in the staff parking lot, Mrs. James used her keychain to remotely unlock the doors to her fancy BMW. This is 1986, y'all. The inside of her car was wood panel details and cream-colored leather, and it smelled like an ashtray and Oscar de la Renta perfume. And as we drove to the other school where the finals were taking place, Mrs. James did her best to turn my nerves into excitement, churning out the usual nonsense about picturing the audience in their underwear. Not so useful for focusing an 11-year-old boy, I might add. Where the fuck was Miss Scalzitti when I really needed her? I imagine that she was sitting in her classroom, sitting at her desk, thinking of me as her students read to themselves. Anyway, my VP chaperone and I registered in the lobby of the hosting school and then made our way into the gigantic auditorium. It was filled with a completely foreign student body. I mean, these were not my school friends. We were on enemy territory now, and these were my opponents. I made my way toward the stage where there was an actual podium 
12 chairs lined up behind it. I mean, this walk seriously felt like it was my green mile. <laughs> At this point, we are approaching what should be the climax of this speech. Structurally, the climax is the moment of maximum emotional intensity that powerfully demonstrates the key message of the speech. The key moment that you've been building to for your audience, a summit, if you will, where speaker and audience can stand together and marvel at the view together and say in unison, ah. <laughs> but at this point, I'm not really sure what the key message of this speech is. Is there a message or is it just a collection of memories from three decades ago when I discovered I could speak effectively from prepared notes and win things for it? This key moment I've been building to suddenly seems really anticlimactic. I mean, the speech is called How I Was a Public Speaking Champion. So yeah, I won. Surprise, surprise. I overcame my fear. I spoke better than I ever had before, and I clinched first place. Mrs. Charlene James went so far as to hug me in congratulations so that my face was buried in her crunchy perm that smelled of DeMaurier and Final Net. <laughs> On the drive back, we drove to a Dairy Queen where she bought me a peanut buster parfait. <laughs> en route to the school, she pressed another button that opened the sunroof in her car, and I felt like a triumphant emperor being brought back to Rome. <laughs> From there, I went on to enter and win many more competitions with my well-worn, life's embarrassing moment speech. I cleaned up at the Catholic Women's League Oral Arts. <laughs> I nabbed the Lions Club Cup. I crept steadily up the Kiwanis circuit. That speech got a lot of mileage, and by the end of that year, my cue cards had curled and torn around the edges, and the sweat from my palms had blurred some of the ink. My bedroom had filled with these gold plastic cups and figurines, and I was pretty sure that I had found my thing. I had learned from Miss Scalzitti that public speaking was a wonderful skill to have, that it could really serve me if I decided to go into something like teaching or politics, or something really crazy like acting. <laughs> Little did we know I'd choose the latter. Well, see, once you hit your climax, the speech should really be nearing its end. Using the summit metaphor, no audience wants to go all the way back down the mountain with you. They'd rather get airlifted off the top whilst they still have the buzz of reaching the goal. This is what a great speech writer should aim for, but what the hell was my goal again, honestly? As much as I would have liked to offer a speedy descent, there is still one more important story before I can zero in on the close. What you need to know is that because of my life's embarrassing moments successes, I became known as the speech champion, not only in my school, but on my street and at home, too. My parents were the ones who had to cart me around to the numerous competitions. We crisscrossed Ontario in my dad's Cadillac Eldorado heading to legion halls and community centers and church basements. And after witnessing so many wins and being told by others that they should be so proud of their son, I realized that they no longer viewed me as just the weird baby of the family. I was now the son who could do something they would never dare to. And for a short while, this was worth more to me than any of the trinkets I was winning. The next year, I was a shoo-in to win, yes? So I wrote my speech over the summer break so that I could be perfectly rehearsed by the time public speaking came along in October. <clears throat> my topic for this new speech was a love, colon, is it a blessing or a curse? 
No joke. I was a 12-year-old virgin, virgin, not virgin, but a virgin, who had never been kissed, speaking about love. No idea where that topic came from and can't remember the content. But I was positive that it would bring down the house. I built it so that it would bring down the house. Winning everything the year before had made me a bit, I don't know, cocky. And so I filled this speech with a lot of tricks that I had learned. I really used my voice to effect. And I discovered the power of the pregnant pause. I had become an oratory army of one. And yes, I did clean up in the competition circuit, ending up at some Ontario regional final thingy. This competition was my biggest one. And if I won this competition, I would go on to represent Ontario at the national level in PEI or something. I can't remember where. I just knew that it would mean getting on a plane. And I was dead set on clinching the prize. I remember that my parents and I had to drive very far to get where it was happening, and there was a veritable blizzard that we were going through. When we finally parked and I finally got in and took my place on the very large stage, I ended up seated beside a competitor who I'd come up against before. Her name was Mary Ellis, and she was good. She had come in second behind me the year before, and I remember thinking back then that her speech had actually been better than mine, but that I had won because I had the charisma she lacked. See. <laughs> Know thy product. Mary Ellis was a dour 12-year-old girl, obviously intelligent and very confident, but a bit too serious. Her hairstyle was a home-cut Dorothy Hamill-type bowl cut, and she dressed like she might be a tad Amish. None of that really mattered, though. I knew she was smarter than me, and I felt threatened by the mix of her brain and her air of self-assuredness. Anyhow, we all picked numbers to decide the running order, and I ended up in the second last slot to be followed by none other than Mary Ellis. When it was my turn to go, I brought out the big guns. So much so that I came dangerously close to going over the allotted seven minutes. When I was finished, I was exhausted. The audience gave me a sustained applause, and I sat back down knowing I had left it all on the stage. Mary Ellis offered me a tight smile as we waited for her cue to proceed, and finally the little bell rung, and up she went. As she began speaking, I couldn't believe my ears. Mary Ellis had made it to this level with a speech on the history of cereal. <laughs> no fucking joke. Cereal, the breakfast food. How? Why? Right from the start, though, there was something different about Mary. It was as though she had gained even more confidence over the past year, and on top of that was displaying real charisma and a refined sense of humor, one that had the adults laughing their asses off. There was no denying that Mary was killing it with her serial speech. The audience and judges were eating it up, and I felt my wind slowly slipping away. By the time she reached her close, I was so entertained and interested by goddamn cereal <laughs> that I'd forgotten that she was my competition. With the speeches done, we took a short break for the judges to deliberate, and I could barely finish my oatmeal cookie. I looked out into the audience to my parents, and I saw my mother smiling with her dead eyes as my father <laughs> avoided my gaze. 
and I knew I had lost to the girl with the cereal. We were called back, and then they began announcing placements. Third place, not me. Runner-up, someone else. First place, Mary Alice with a history of cereal. I offered her the most sincere congratulations I could muster. She responded by telling me that she thought my speech was funny. <laughs> funny. I grabbed my participation ribbon and rushed my parents out the door. I don't remember saying a single word the entire ride home. They offered their obligatory consolations, but I didn't care. I knew Mary Ellis deserved to win, and I also knew that I was done with public speaking, at least at the competitive level. The close can be the hardest part of speech writing. It's the final section. It's where you're supposed to hit home with your action point, the key thing you want your audience to do differently as a result of listening to your speech. But I have to admit, I don't really know what that is. Often the close is where speakers end up undermining the power of the rest of their speech by overwriting in an attempt to arrive at a memorable conclusion that captures the essence of the speech. That might be the trap I find myself in now. You see, I find myself circling above all these memories and lessons learned with a greater admiration for the 11-year-old me who just went after it without worrying so much, without worrying nearly as much as the 40-year-old me who was trying to write the speech. How is it that even after all that experience, the reality of having to get up and speak in front of a group of strangers filled me with fresh terror? The gold plastic coating has begun flaking off my surviving trophies. One can only hope that the rewards outlast the awards, I guess. I have one piece of advice for speaking to a room full of people. Instead of picturing them in their underwear, try picturing them as 11-year-old versions of yourself, and it suddenly becomes an act of forgiveness, not fear. Salvatore. Antonio. Thank you. You're listening to the Trampoline Hall Podcast. I'm Misha Goldman. Up next, the Q&A. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Are there any, are there any <laughs> questions? Uh, yes, you ma'am, yes. Love. Is it a blessing? <laughs> <laughs> Is love a blessing? I still or don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. 
Yes, yes, you're in the back. Yeah, so, so the woman who won the, the speaking competition, what was her name? Mary? The woman, Mary? I, like, I like the 11-year-old woman with Mary. <laughs> she was the woman back then, Mary yeah. Ellis. I used yeah. all real names. Mary, Mary Ellis. Ellis. What, did you, what did you want to know about her? Well, where is she now? Where is she now? Yeah. Do you know, I really had to stop myself from, like, Googling or Facebooking these people because I was terrified of what they would look like now and that it would, like, break my image of them because right. she is, like, obviously imprinted. I don't know where she is now. Is, are you, is she here, Mary? Oh, my, if she was here, I would lose it. <laughs> imagine if they all came instead of the audience. Like, so, City, Rosetta. When you have to imagine the audience as those 11-year-olds, but they actually are those 11-year-olds. <laughs> All right, so we don't know. We don't know where Mary Ellis know. is, but if you want to find her, her name is Mary, Mary Ellis, Ellis, and she's, she's good at speaking and less dour than she used to be, so that yes, can help you, help you narrow it down. <laughs> Any other questions? Anything else you would like to know? Yes, over here. Yeah, thank you. Did you keep in touch with Miss Scalziti? No, I, didn't, I don't keep in touch with anybody. I mean, I didn't, no, I didn't keep in touch with her. Uh, she was still there when I was in grade eight, and we we had a special relationship, nothing untoward. <laughs> but I mean, uh, she had a soft spot for me, and I really enjoyed her. But that was it. After I, w I went to a different high school um, outside of that district, and that was it. She was special. She really was special. Though. Really yeah, special. All right. Yes, yes, you sir. Would you consider turning this into a feature film? <laughs> Would you consider turning this into a feature film? You mean like with real 11-year-old? Isn't there like a documentary about... Oh. There's one about... Some people are like, oh, oh, there's one about scuttling bees, but that's totally different. <laughs> I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. The real deal, like the real competitions are so full of drama, I don't know if you even need to dramatize them. It's like the stakes are so high at that... I mean, what are you... Are you pitching me? Are you... A <laughs> just kidding. I'm You want to see that movie now. So you just I want the movie to be so that you can see it. So I think that's why all the movies get made. They're just like, ah, just come back and show me this in six years and $12 million. Or Thank you. And, and, all right, so, so, so as far as we know, yes, you, but you would, you would, would say what? no to making a movie. I'd be like, oh, we're not having this conversation. <laughs> really? Talk to me. <laughs> After the show. All right, yeah. Yes, in the back, yes. Uh, did you keep a copy of your speeches? Do you have no. a copy of your speeches? No. Okay, so remember, this is like 86 to 88. Right. I didn't get a computer, no joke, till about 19, no, 2000. I was right. like a late bloomer. There was no, I wrote them by hand. And there was more like liquid paper than there was ink. Because you know when like you screwed up like halfway down a cue card, you're not going to start over again. No, they were cue cards. And I don't know. I did keep them for a while, but like I said, there was a lot of moving of my things and throwing out of my things while I was away in Montreal, and I think they they went. Yeah. Okay, so no, no, no they're not. They're sadly, not did you want? Did someone? Did you want them? Who was? Whose question was it? Did you? Were you curious? Like, did you want to see them? Or? <laughs> yeah, I would sure. love to read them too because I can't. I don't have a good memory, so I can't remember exactly what I said. But I'm sure they were very colorful. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes, you remember over there. Yes. Who do you like to listen to public speaking wise nowadays? Oh, jeez. That's a, I don't know. I, no, uh, uh, see, the problem is this is when you've like learned about public speaking or a performance yeah. and you figure out the formula, it's really hard to just enjoy 
someone doing it without thinking of how they're doing what they're doing. So for me, like when everyone's like, Obama is such a good speaker, I'm like, I mean, yes, he's not like what Barbara was an automaton, but I mean like the emphatic gesture and the like stretching out of, I'm just like, yeah, I get it. He's no Mary Ellis. He's no, he is no Mary Ellis. Um, I, you know, I like, I like people, I like listening to just like regular people speak publicly, not people that are overtrained. It's a weird question. It's a weird question because it's one of the funny things about that thing about like the public speaking competition yeah. for kids as they're kids, and you're like, oh, I'll become good at this thing, public speaking. But as an adult, like, like you're not like, oh, let's go, let's go see some public speaking. Yeah. Let's go watch. A, you know, it's an idea. You guys. Like you guys are the only people in the totally. world who do that. So good on you. But it's weird. It's not like a, it's not like a thing. It's not totally. Thing well, world. you know what's funny is like when when Sheila asked me to do something for this, I gave her a list of three things, and this was the one which I believe in full caps and all caps I was just like I do not want to do a speech on this but I just need to tell you because yeah. it was more of a story I was like I used to do this when I was a kid and of course she's like that's the speech and I'm like Ugh. yeah that's pretty and much I, the premise I can't of, say no to <laughs> Sheila so that's pretty much the premise of Trampoline Hall it's based uh, on people doing things I they don't want to do because they yes. can't say no to Sheila <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful force in the world uh, anything else anything else like, uh, yes you ma'am yes What's more important, the writing or the performance? Because your writing was good, but you're saying, but your performance was like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, you're absolutely right because you know what? Having this to read off of, I don't feel too good about. I was having some anxiety about this earlier because the fact is, I had to finish writing this about like 2 p.m. this afternoon, and so it was not committed to memory. So I would say, what's more important than the writing is actually the communication of it, which you would call performance. I think that's more important if you're passionate about a subject and your goal is to communicate that passion to an audience, that's way more important than all the facts and figures, at least to me. Does that answer? Your so the performance is the answer. More so than I kind of failed on the performance end because of the paper. Yeah, I saw people were pretty bummed out about that. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, was like, everyone was like, dude, just email it to us, whatever. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Uh, yes, yes, you, sir. <laughs> What did you wear for your public speaking engagements? That's so weird that you asked that because I had kind of like two outfits that I, because I didn't have a lot of clothes. Um, so I had like the same two outfits that I would kind of recycle, but it was always a loose acrylic blend sweater. I, those really worked well for me. Um, you know, and I would just pair them up. Like there was the gray one with the black jean, and then there was one that was kind of like pumpkin popped that I would wear with the blue jean, and I just kind of switched them up. But it was always usually a sweater and jean. Sounds good. That's a, is that, does that answer your question? I don't remember. I don't remember. Oh, they all won. I mean, yes. do you look mean at the, all these? Look at all these trophies. One box of four. You know, this is honestly the box they came in, and look what it says. Box one, one of four. four. Oh my God. Trophies. And then basement. Box one of four basement. Oh my God, that's insane. And my birthing partners went and gave the rest of them away. <laughs> that's crazy. That, that, 
Do you know what it just occurred to me? The thing that occurred to me about the, not to come back to the movie thing, but when, that, when the guy was like, do you want to make the movie about this? And the thing that occurred to me about, about it as a movie, and also as a story, that's very confusing to me in terms of like, what is the lesson that we're supposed to draw from this, is that the standard movie plot is, like there's the kid, and he tries to be good, and he fails, and then he fails again, and he fails again, and he fails again, and he keeps trying, and finally succeeds. But your story is, I did this thing from the very first time I did it. I was a complete champion. It came easy to me all the time. And the very first time I didn't come in first place, I gave up forever. <laughs> And, and that is a weird, weird lesson that you have people. Anyone, anyone who knows me personally is just like, that's so him. I'm just like, I will not fail in public. Like, I would sooner pull like, out. He's like, incredibly talented, but no grit whatsoever. Yeah, just like. I was a total brat who was like, well, if I'm not winning, I'm not playing. Mary Ellis can have the damn cup. Does this, this like echo Put in some other. cereal in it, bitch. Yeah, I was like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Are there other things, other areas in life where you're incredibly talented and could have done something had you not given up at the very first sign of failure? <laughs> oh. What was the question it's again? A, it's an easy question, dude. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know why. Are there, does, are there other things that are like that for you? Are there other things where you're like, yeah, I'm really good at that, but I do, because I I just gave up well, yeah, because in the face like, of failure. Uh, well, it, it's not just failure it's the expect expect I don't deal with expectation right. so I'm like right. if I don't think I can deliver I would sooner like not go I do that routinely with auditions right. I, w I work as an actor and if I don't feel like I'm going to be putting the best thing in the audition I will fake an illness right. and like, like not like, go just like not go so I would sooner home. not go my agent's always like just go you never know I'm like no I know like and if it's not good, I don't want them to see it. All right, okay. So, yes. So, yes. All right. Okay, good. Well, it's a lesson. It's a lesson we can all... Do you feel that's a lesson we can all I'm learn so, from? I don't know. There's, there are lessons to be learned all around this, maybe. <laughs> but just give up as soon as you realize that you're failing. <laughs> that seems like a nice contrast to the danger of the elevated ending yeah, that you worry right. about. So maybe we'll, don't, we'll don't end on that. Give up. Uh, just give up. G okay, give we'll up. wrap it up there. Salvatore Antonio. <laughs> Can we leave your trophies up on the The Trampoline Hall was created in Toronto in the 21st century by Sheila Hetty and is hosted by me. This episode's lecture was chosen by Sheila Hetty. The podcast is produced by Josh Block. Our theme music was composed by Matt Smith. Trampling Hall is a sumo audio podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review or positive rating on iTunes. It really helps a lot. It helps us reach more listeners. I'm Misha Goldman. Thanks for listening. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. 
Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.